0: Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace this morning to know your mind? Would you give us the ability to peer into your word as we consider how God the Father speaks to God the Son on this Father's Day? May each of us look to you as Father. May we fathers pattern our speech after you, our perfect Father. And I pray that everybody here would look to Christ as their sole sufficiency, and find their hope in you. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, children, it is not a children's church Sunday, and on non-children's church Sundays, i like to start with a little story just for you. I'm going to tell, since it's Father's Day, two of my favorite stories about my dad. One is more for you guys, and the second one will be more for adults. Fair enough, kiddos? You guys like that plan? Okay, when I was In the ninth grade, I was about 14 years old. I played on the high school basketball team. I went to a big high school. We had three basketball teams at our high school, one for the varsity boys, one for the JV team, and one for the ninth graders. And I was a ninth grader, and I played, of course, on the ninth grade team. One Saturday morning, it was an early Saturday morning game in January, and it was cold. We had a game, and after the game was over, I was a bit curious because I didn't get to play in the game. Now, I didn't play a lot in the games because I was a backup, but I usually got to play every game and I didn't get to play at all. After the game was over, the coach gathered the team together and the coach of the varsity team came into the locker room, which was unusual. This was the big boy coach. And he said, guys, We have a thief in our midst. Apparently, somebody had stolen something from the locker room. And the coach said, which one of you would like to confess to being the one who stole? And of course, everybody's kind of looking around at each other, wondering who the thief would be. And the coach said, all right, all of you can leave, except for Greg Baker. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. When all the players left, the two coaches accused me of stealing from one of the other players. Now, children, I need to make a confession to you. I did a lot of bad things when I was a kid, but I did not steal anything that time, okay? Well, it took a while, and I pled my innocence. My dad was waiting outside in the parking lot. I got in the car, and I was upset. My dad said, why did it take you so long to get out? And I told my dad everything that had happened. And he said, I'll take care of it. And I said, okay. That night, the varsity team had a game. My dad walked onto the basketball court before the game and said to the coach, I'd like to have a word with you. And the coach said, can I talk to you after the game? And my dad said, sure. Well, my dad, children, had this hair. It was silvery white. It stood out. Even as a young man, he had silvery white hair. And my dad took his seat directly behind the coach. All game long, all I could see was my dad staring straight at the head coach. And I thought, oh no, that coach is in for it. (laughs) I've been in this situation many times. (laughs) And I know what he has coming. (laughs) After the game was over, my dad met with him. My dad said hardly a word to me about it. On Monday, the coach came in and apologized to me in front of the team. Now, children, i got a question for you. Do you think it felt really good or really bad to know that my dad was on my side? That felt really good. Well, fast forward a few years. I was on the phone with my dad. I was being discouraged by a situation that tapped all my insecurities as a pastor. And I said to my dad, maybe it would be best for everybody if I just stopped being a pastor. And my dad said, my dad, there was a pause. My dad said, well, Greg, you could do that. You could do that. But I think it would be the biggest mistake you ever made. And I have to tell you, in that moment, a lightning bolt of confidence went through me. And from that moment forward, I have never once doubted the calling of God on my life. Now, I tell these two stories on Father's Day to give you dads One point to help you, Dads, understand one point that we're going to illustrate from the scriptures for the rest of today. Dads, if you will please hear me, I want you to know that you wield tremendous power in the lives of your children. You wield almost unfathomable power with your words in the hearts of your children. You can use that power for good or you can use that power for evil. But if you can harness that power for good, the good that you can do for your children is beyond your ability to understand. And what I want us to see today is how God the Father speaks to God the Son and how God the Son, Jesus Christ, is given confidence and perspective, and he's given encouragement. And I want us dads to pattern our speech to our children after God the Father, after the way God the Father speaks to God the Son. I had Don read Matthew chapter three verses uh, 13 through 17, and we are going to touch on that passage, but just for a little introduction, I want you to know that We've been working through the book of Ephesians, and in Ephesians 5, chapter 1, we're told, be imitators of God. We're going to study that next week as we, re, as we pick up again our study through the book of Ephesians. But for this Father's Day, let that be sort of a sermon text for today. How should we fathers speak to our children? Well, we should imitate God. How do we imitate God? Well, let's read and see how God talks. Fair enough? So this is almost a pre-application of next week's sermon. Please come back next week, though, just because you're getting an application. You, You still need to come back next week and hear the rest of it, though. So, there are three times in the Gospels. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of the Gospel writers mention at least two of these. But when we put them together, there are three scenes from those first few books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are mentioned where God the Father audibly speaks for other people to hear to Jesus, his son. You might want to write them down. They are Matthew 3.17, Matthew 17.5, and John 12.28. Like I said, these are recorded in other passages, namely Mark 1, Luke 9, and some others. But we're going to limit ourselves to just these three passages because they're the same three scenes. Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 17, and John 12. As God would have it, these events where God the Father speaks audibly for others to hear, they essentially occur at the beginning, the middle, and at the end of Jesus' earthly life. Jesus ministered for about three years, and we get these three messages from God the Father for all the rest to hear, right at the very beginning, with about a year left, and right at the very end. So let's study those in order, and those will be our three points for today. The first one was uh, what we're calling the Father approves. The Father approves. Let us set the scene. It's in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus has just come onto the scene. He's about 30 years old. John the Baptist is the eminent preacher of his day. He's down by the Jordan River, which is a slow-moving, muddy sort of river in the off-season. Now, when it's, the snow is melting up from up on top of Mount Hermon, it runs quite fast. But during this time of the year, it's gentle and rather deep. You can get into your waist or your chest. It's not very wide across. It's not even as wide across as the sanctuary is. John there is baptizing people, John the Baptist. Jesus shows up one day almost out of the blue. We haven't heard anything from Jesus since he was born. He goes to John and he says, John, would you baptize me? And John, who is very aware of his role as the forerunner of Jesus, he knows he's talking to the divine son of God, says, no, no. I have need to be baptized of you. Nobody knows who this upstart preacher is except for those, his brothers, maybe the people in Nazareth, his mom and his dad, his dad who's probably passed away since then. Jesus is literally splashing onto the scene. He tells John, let it be so. So kind of Jesus to give John the right of refusal. He's giving John the authority. Would you please, kindly let it be so. So John acquiesces. John dips Jesus under the water. Jesus is identifying with us. And as soon, we're told in both Matthew and Luke, as soon as Jesus is lifted up from the water, it says that the heavens were opened. Matthew uses an interesting word. He says the heavens were opened like a door swings on its hinges or like a mouth that's hanging open in shock. Mark uses a word that says the heavens tore open. Tore open like a garment tears and through that opening flew the Holy Spirit and settled on Jesus and then... This pronouncement comes from heaven. This is the Father speaking to the Son. This is my beloved Son. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God is saying, I am utterly, completely satisfied with you. Jesus was about to begin his mission. And he's identifying with him with us in this baptism. And God for all around to hear thunders forth his approval. Now like with anything that the father and the son does this is really significant. In Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 we're told Kiss the son, kiss the son whom God loves. Or in Isaiah 42 verses one through following, you definitely want to circle that one because this is the servant of the Lord on whom the spirit rests, the one in whom God is pleased. And right here, we're told that God is so pleased and approving of his son and the mission that he's about to go on and what he's about to do. Jesus stands at the at the beginning of this journey. And here, right here at the very beginning, God shouts, He thunders His approval to His Son. One might think that Jesus didn't need this approval. But Jesus, who was a high priest, tempted in all points, like as we, yet without sin, Jesus in His humanness, His divine humanness, most certainly craved the approbation of his father. He most certainly wanted to hear, well done. He most certainly wanted to hear, you're doing so well. How many of you remember back when you were a kid, your father first entrusted to you a job that he had withheld to himself all these years? Perhaps it was cutting the grass. Perhaps it was washing the car. Perhaps it was cooking a steak. Who knows what it is? And he entrusts it to you. And you do it. Do you remember that day? You couldn't wait for your father to get home and inspect your work. And if you will, remember the satisfaction that poured over your soul when your dad said, good job. You did a good job. This is the approval and the confidence that Jesus gathers right at the beginning of his ministry, instantly as he comes out of the water. And this is done for all to hear. Matthew chapter 17, we move to our second point. The Father attests. The Father approves of Jesus, and the Father attests of Jesus. Let's turn there. Matthew 17, this is a little different scene. This is in the middle of Jesus' ministry. He's got about a year left. Something, though, is changing. He's He's been walking around the hills. He's been performing miracles. He's been teaching. But from this point forward, from this moment forward, Jesus is on a crash course with the cross of Calvary, and this marks a major transition in the direction that he's going with his life. It says in Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus, verse one, took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led him up to a high mountain by themselves. This mountain really can be none other than Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is about 5,000 feet above where Jesus and the disciples had been. So imagine being in our valley and hiking to the very tippy top of Lewis Peak, What was that, about 10,000 feet? That's about 5,000 feet above us. In fact, back then, it was well-known, hikers would hike up onto the top of Hermon and would camp out that night just so they could see the sunrise the following morning. And then they would hike down the following day. It appears that that is what Jesus took his disciples to do. He said, hey, let's go on a hike. Let's camp out at night. Let's watch the sunrise at Mount Hermon. Well, instead of seeing the sunrise, they saw Jesus, and the word is literally metamorphosized. He was transformed right in front of them. All along they realized that Jesus had cloaked himself in flesh as Yahweh, as Jehovah. He's magnificent beyond compare. He's the God of light. He's the God who created light. He's the God who is light. And suddenly it comes pouring forth from him, and the disciples are amazed by this metamorphosis. As they're on top of that mountain, and Jesus is transfigured, he's metamorphosized before them, he begins talking with Moses and Elijah. Moses, the chief prophet of Israel, the one who gave us the law, and Elijah, the chief miracle worker of Israel, the two most powerful prophets that have ever lived. And Jesus is talking to them, it says. And they're talking, we're told in other passages, about what he is going to do. They're talking about the cross. Peter taken up in this moment, and Peter, who is a man who tends to talk first and think second. How many of us have a cousin like that, okay? I would say how many of you are like that, but don't you don't have to confess to that. I talk first and think second. I'll put myself in that category. My wife will sometimes remind me, now don't forget, because I have talked first (laughs) and thought second. Well, Peter has an idea. Peter has an idea. Jesus, it's good that we're here. Was he right? Oh, yeah, it was good. I have an idea. We're up here camping. Let's make... Three tents, three shelters. I'll build them right here. One for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, here's what Peter was suggesting. We have actually a good illustration of this if you look over at the Parsonage Project. When you look on the main floor, you'll notice something about the windows. They're all the same height tall. Because Pastor Dom and Nathan are, well, with the exception of one, the kitchen window was lowered so that Megan could see out when she's doing the dishes. But it wasn't originally so. Because Pastor Dom and Nathan are such good carpenters, you could take out a level line, one of those laser-powered ones, and shine it, and all those windows are going to land, bang, right at the same level high. That's what Jesus was doing that's what Peter was doing with Jesus and Moses and Elijah let's have all three of these guys at the same level now Peter was not meaning Peter was not meaning to be disrespectful to Jesus But very often we can be disrespectful to people without meaning it, can't we? And as soon as those words left Peter's mouth, the father again speaks of his son. He says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What does a prophet do? A prophet speaks. Moses wrote, Moses preached, Moses spoke. Elijah wrote, Elijah Elijah spoke, Elijah wrote. Jesus is standing there among these giants. And God the Father thunders in the presence of Jesus and these others. My, he's mine. He's mine. And he's my beloved, my agapetas. He's my beloved. I love him. I am pleased with everything he does. He does nothing wrong. He does everything right. My soul is knit to his. I love him. No disrespect to Moses or Elijah. And Elijah and Moses would have said the same thing. Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. A cloud had descended over them and they were so afraid. And here the Father attests that Jesus is superior to everybody and everything that's come before. There's nobody, there's nothing greater than Jesus, God's beloved. And God thunders it there for Peter and James and John to hear and they never forgot it. Now, let's move to our third one, John chapter 12. If you'll turn there with me. John chapter 12, it's over just a few verses, uh, over a few books, rather. If you've got a pew Bible and you find the page, just shout it out so that other people can find it quickly if they're using the pew Bibles. By the way, if you didn't bring a a Bible with you and you want one of those blue ones, please take it. It's yours. We are happy to provide that for you. Take it home and read it. It's our gift to you. uh, John chapter 12. This will require just a little bit of explanation. This is at the end of Jesus' life. Let's go to verse 20. Jesus is going to the festival. He's going to Passover. This is the Passover that's going to take his life. He's going to die in a very short amount of time. It says that at that festival, at that worship feast, verse 20, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Greeks. Now let's pause right there. The early chapters, the early books of the New Testament are very Jewish. Jesus was a Jewish man, from a Jewish line, writing to Jewish or speaking and preaching to Jewish people. But his mission involved being rejected by the Jewish people. He was sent to his own and his own did not receive him. The mission of Jesus all along was to save some Jews, of course. All those whose hearts would resonate with Jesus and want to be changed. But Jesus would graft in an incalculable number of Gentiles, of non-Jews, people who were outside the covenant. And right here, just a short time before Jesus is about to be crucified, some of these Gentiles, they've heard about him and they're there. And it says, verse 21, so these these Gentiles came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They found a, a Gent- uh, perhaps a Greek speaker among the twelve and asked him, Sir, We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Let's pause right there. Jesus is suddenly told that these people want to come talk to him. Think about how ordinary that is. Jesus, there's some folks here, there's some Gentiles here who would like to have a word with you. Jesus says, oh, these are Gentiles. Now, we don't know if Jesus ended up meeting with him. That's not the point. The point is, Jesus says that this, this meeting right here that he's having with Gentiles is a foretaste and an accomplishment of his mission. He says right here, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. All up to this point in Jesus' life, the moment of his crucifixion, the moment of his death, has been in the future. Some future day. Soon. But right here, in the book of John, we begin a transition. It's here. It's soon. It's now. And Jesus sees that these non-Jews are wanting to come have a conversation with him. And he says, now, this this is why I've come. This is why I'm here. And he begins to pray. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, verse 27. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then a spontaneous closing to the spontaneous prayer. He says, Father, glorify Your name. In other words, Jesus had just said, I've I've come like a seed that has to die before it produces fruit. I've I've, I've come to die. Should I abandon this mission that God has sent me on? God, I know that The means of my death is right around the corner. I'm not shrinking back from this. I'm not running from this. Glorify your name in my sacrifice. And right there, right there, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. when jesus faced down the accomplishment of his father's mission and when he put behind him the fear and the suffering and the shame and embraced which we knew which we know he had already done but he states it again I'm embracing the bloody mission that God has for me. Not my glory, but God's. When Jesus says these words, it's almost as though the Father was sitting on the edge of His throne hearing this drama play out. Now, from our perspective, it looks like a father who can no longer contain his pleasure. And he bursts forth. I've heard you. I've heard you, and I'm answering it right now. I will will glorify my name. The work that you're about to do will not be in vain. I will honor this request. So, what do we see here from these three scenes of God the Father speaking to God the Son? We see a Father who approves. We see a Father who isn't afraid to voice His approval. We see a Father who defends, who publicly pronounces that his son is up to good and he fully intends to support him and encourages others to follow that son. We see a father who's listening. And when his son earnestly desires to do the will of the father, there's immediate approval An immediate push. God puts wind in his sails. Instantly. There's a constant push of God the Father to God the Son to accomplish his will. What else do we see? We see an expression of pleasure. I'm pleased in you. You make me proud. You've done well. We've seen a father who tells his son, I love you. I love you. There is an older generation I think it was probably my grandfather's generation that shrinks back from telling their sons that they love them. May it never be among us. If God the Father repeatedly, publicly, affirms his love for his son And we're to imitate that, dads, how often ought we affirm all that is good and right and praiseworthy in the hearts of our children. Now, I have just two applications. Dads and moms, you're welcome to listen in as I talk to dads, okay? Or children, you're welcome to listen in too imitation requires observation imitation requires observation a few years ago i read a book called the what was it called the mental side of tennis something like that i don't remember exactly what it was called there was a tennis coach out of california it's a phenomenal coach he coached many champions many players had come through his ranks and had won, and he'd coached many athletes who ended up playing professionally and winning major championships. This coach never actually gave verbal instruction. He would never say, I want you to hold the racket like this, or I want you to move around the court like this. You know what he would do when we have a young student? He would, he would have them sit in front of him and he would say, I want you to watch how I hit this ball. And he would just move over and he'd say, now you do your best impersonation of me. And he'd whack a forehand, whack another one, whack a third one. And then he'd tell the student, all right, your turn. You be me. And he said it was remarkable how the student, how the athlete picked up on the tiniest little nuances of the coach simply by observation. Simply by observing to mimic what he saw. Now dads, the same holds true as we wield this enormous power in the lives of our children. The only way we are going to speak love and kindness and mercy into the lives of our children is if we're immersed in the loving kindness of our Heavenly Father. We read passages like Romans chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we say to ourselves, "Uh, I'm at peace with God, I have peace right now. I'm justified right now, not by my own good works. We read Romans 8 and realize there's no condemnation for us. We read Ephesians chapters 1, 2, 3, and we read of all the affirmations that God makes of us. We go to the Psalter, and we see that God surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. And we hear how God talks of us in our presence, how God talks to us. And we immerse our minds with how God talks to us. And yes, there are times when our children go astray and they need a correction. How has God corrected us in the word? How has God directed us to put us back on the right path? He's done so lovingly and kindly. He's done so gently. And I can tell you it was probably only after he'd given you many, many gentle nudges that he maybe gave you a firmer one. And so, men, immerse yourself in how God speaks of you so that you can transfer that to how you talk to your children. Now, I have a second application, but don't put it up on the screen if you haven't already. Maybe you already have, but okay, good. Now, I'd like to make an observation, okay? Every dad I talk to under the age of 40 has a certain self-confidence about themselves that I, too, have been infected with. On the other hand, almost every father I talk to over the age of 60, do you know what their predominant feeling is? Guilt. I must have blown it somewhere they think back on all the missed opportunities or the failures and for those dads who are feeling like that second category I have a message for you Imitation can begin anytime. I don't care how old you are. Do you know who spots change in you first? Even before you see it, even before your wife sees it, I guarantee if you start changing, your kids will be the first to spot it and your kids will be the first to appreciate it. Imitation is never too late to begin. Let us remember, it is never, ever too late to speak as God speaks. You say, Pastor, I've, I've blown it. I messed up. My kids are adults, they're out of the house now, I, I can't get it back. Well, Maybe you can't, but God can. And so you confess that, and you turn that over to the Lord, and you tell the Lord, I'm going to start patterning my speech with my kids after you. I'm going to marinate in the truths of the Gospel and the affirmations that you've given about me as your son. And by your grace, I'm going to start speaking to my children the way you spoke to your son." kids will start to notice a difference. And you can begin seeing that relationship grow buds and fruit and blossom when you didn't think it could. God wants to redeem those years. So let him start doing it. If you doubt me, I would encourage you to read about Jacob or Judah or David or wicked King Manasseh and see how these dads had gone astray, but God reclaimed them for his own. Now dads, I have one last thought before we wrap up for the morning, okay? I've asked a couple of you before this in uh, counseling, so if you know the answer, please don't shout it out. How many good dads do we see in the Bible? Rack your brain. How many good dads are there? I've I've counted. I I have a number in my mind. How many good dads? Anybody? Like to take a guess? One? Who's the one? God? Well, let's let's exclude God, okay? (laughs) How many good human dads are there? I would call Joseph Jesus' dad. Good. We just don't get to meet him very well. He's off the scene. But he's great in the little bit that we get to know him. I would also probably put Abraham in there. Abraham had his mistakes, no doubt about it. But I'd put Abraham in there. Can anybody think of other ones? (laughs) Job? Job? You know, that's a good one, Paul. I I hadn't thought of Job. Let's make that three. Okay, my number was two, now it's three. The point holds, though. We don't have a lot of good human examples, do we? What we have to do is ask ourselves, why? Why didn't God fill the pages of Scripture with great dads? It's simply so we would direct our minds to God the Father, our Heavenly Father, and let Him be our pattern. So let us do that with courage and boldness and grace this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time here today. Thank you for the opportunity to learn and worship. Lord, for any dads in here feeling totally overwhelmed by guilt, restore them. Give them confidence that their change will... Not go unnoticed by you. Give them contentment and satisfaction, the kind of contentment and satisfaction that you have in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would so thoroughly change us by the gospel and by our relationship with you that our speech to our children would have a dramatic quality of godliness. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.